Well, thank you so much, Josh, for joining me today. Super excited that we finally get to have this conversation. It's been a while, and I think the last time we we spoke, you're just expand, expanding into the United States. So I think this is a really good time to to chat and catch up on everything. But you know, before we get into what Humanitics is and, and everything it is is now and what it's going to be, talk a little bit about your journey into why you even started Humanitics and what's what's sort of the path. Yeah, thanks, Grant, and great to great to be catching up again. Um, so I started Humanitics with my best friend Adam, um, Adam McCurdy, and we we met at, well we went to the same high school but different years, and then we were at university. We became really good friends, um, and you can probably tell from my accent for your audience. I'm from Australia. In Australia, when we go to university, we generally live at home with our parents still and work a job and travel with the money we can save, so we don't move out onto campus. And so I did about two years of backpacking on a shoestring when I was. Uh, doing my degree. <laughs> and uh, about half of that was spent with Adam. And so you get a lot of time exploring, chatting, um, learning, growing. And uh, we did most of it in low-income countries, like a lot of, of um, a lot of Asia, around Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, places like this, India. And you really get a you really get to see how just how lucky you are back home. I mean, Australia is a great country, really privileged to come from there, great healthcare, great education. And so you know, with that comes a moral duty to give back. And we read a few books. One in particular was um, Banker to the Bahor by Muhammad Yunus, yeah. founder of Grameen Bank. And in case your audience doesn't know him, he um, he found a way to lift millions of people out of poverty by setting up a nonprofit bank and giving nonprofit loans to them, where the objective wasn't to make a return, it was to help people start businesses in rural parts of really poor countries. And so we read that and we're like, wow, that's cool. Like, you know, I don't want to go back to Sydney and get a, a job in some company I don't care about and, you know, do that with my time. Like, uh, that's just not exciting. We were idealistic uni students. So we, we thought we want to do something like what he did, <laughs> Mohammed Yunus. Um, but $1 loans don't go very far in Sydney. It's not as bad as San Francisco, but it's very expensive. Right, right. And so, um, you know, we recognized technology was the biggest driver of change in our generation and in our country and, you know, where we live. And uh, it also makes more money than any other industry. So we thought, hmm, could we create a technology charity that disrupts an industry for good. And uh, within that idea, we, we sat on it for a while. We came up with different experiments. We uh, had lots of funny thoughts. We were going to try and take on Facebook at one point with a social media platform that does good. <laughs> sure. uh, and we might one day still do that. But uh, but we landed on the slightly less ambitious path of, well, as idealistic uni students, we were buying tickets and getting slapped with annoying booking fees that were outrageous. And we thought, who the hell are these ticketing platforms? Everyone hates them. Uh, they yeah, seem to get so away brutal. with it. It looks very monopolistic. Um, fees should come down over time with technology and ticketing that gone up and up and up, um, even though you don't get a physical ticket anymore. So we called bullshit and we, uh, excuse my French, but I'm from Australia. No, I, I love it. No, I love it. Um, yeah, we decided to do something about it. So we said, let's flip this model on its head. And instead of having, um, you know, incredibly monopolistic, greedy shareholders, um, let's have uh, the world's poorest children as our shareholders and let's build the world's first technology charity or one of the world's firsts. And so we um, started doing that. And sorry, that's a long answer to like the light bulb moment, but it wasn't really a moment. It was a, it was a 10 year period for us of exploring and searching. Wow. So when people ask you what humanities is, like, how would you explain it to them? I mean, obviously there's sort of comps, right? Like an event, right? Right. Or, or something similar like that. But I guess, how would you explain it to somebody who hasn't sort of heard about it yet? Right. What's the pitch? Yeah, so um, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, uh, one of our main competitors is Eventbrite. So Humanitics is first and foremost a ticketing platform. Event organizers use it to build and manage and promote their events and sell tickets, collect the money, etc. And the big twist with Humanitics, well, there's a few, but the main one is that all our profits fund uh, amazing predominantly education programs for the world's poorest children. And that comes at no extra cost to the event organizer. In fact, they'll save money because our fees are a lot lower than 
the for-profit ticketing platforms like Eventbrite, way lower than Ticketmaster. And so it's good business to use us. If you're an event organizer, at least have a look. <laughs> um, and if the client themselves are a non-profit or social enterprise, they can actually use our platform at our sustainable cost price, um, which is you know often less than half of the for-profit ticketing platforms. So we've tried to make a no-brainer ticketing platform for people who want to do good, but maybe don't have the money to be donating to charity. So just by changing this platform they use to Humanitics, it creates real tangible good in the world. How, how was the, the startup process for you you know, really as a, you know, first time founder kind of walking into this arena and kind of, you know, trying to disrupt a, a pretty big industry global, I mean, especially here in the United States and, you know, globally, there's just obviously more and more events coming on board. And now with the advent of, of sort of remote, now we have these, you know, virtual sort of events and, and all that, that goes into that. But what's the journey been like for you as, as a startup founder going out and sort of, you know, whether it's raising capital for a nonprofit, right, which is weird or, or having like, you know, donors <laughs> coming by, what's that process been like? Yeah, so it's kind of been three phases to that journey and process. Um, so phase one was like, we came up with the idea. Uh, we were in a mid to late 20s with, you know, a little bit saved up, but not much. We weren't millionaires. Um, and trying to build a technology company with no shareholders is hard. Firstly, when we were starting, no one would fund it. So it was me and Adam funding it. So we moved back to our parents' place, hunkered down on expenses. Um, I stayed at my job. Adam went full-time first because he has a technology background. And we just had to bootstrap for the first two years. And our first few staff were volunteers idealistic young people who didn't have a family to feed yet so they could afford to work for free for a bit um, and move back to their parents' places. Wow, amazing. And we got to about 10 of us at working predominantly from Adam's parents' place before we got a break. So we started in 2015 and, and in 2018, we had a massive break. Um, we won the, what's called the Google Impact Challenge, which gives a million dollars in prize money to the best technology, nonprofit ideas that can change the world. And um, we'd been giving it a bash. We'd proven it could work. You know, we'd sold millions of dollars in tickets on a you know very lean, lean household company, <laughs> right, um, right. which was a charity. We turned it into a charity, so there wasn't any sh equity or shareholders. Um, and uh, that changed everything. It allowed us to really beef up our technology team. And it also made us a lot more attractive to other philanthropists because before that, no one would fund us because they're all like, well, what the hell is this? A ticketing platform that's a charity? It doesn't make sense. But then, you know, once... Once Google did their due diligence and approved it, then suddenly we were the sexy new thing in philanthropy in Australia. And um, and Atlassian is another tech foundation that was actually yep. came in before Google. They're, they're an Australian company ready. as well. Right? Yeah, listed on the NASDAQ, but yeah, started yeah. in Sydney and they're, they're our Microsoft is the easiest way to explain it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, they're huge. Uh, really, really cool company. Yeah. And so that was kind of phase one, the, the hustle, you know, earn nothing for a few years, which was a massive like mental challenge because, you know, we're in our late 20s. All our friends are like getting mortgages and settling down. Right, right. We're, we're not earning anything. In fact, we're going backwards because we're funding things ourselves. Um, and we're not building any equity or anything we can sell down the track. So there's no sweat equity being built. It's just a passion project that we, but, you know, so that was a hard patch. Um, then the second patch was kind of cool. Google's backed us, Atlassian's backed us. Like we got a good brand in Australia, we're scaling. Um, and then phase two was COVID. <laughs> we were like doubling every six yeah. months. We'd become self-funding. We were proving this could work. Um, and then our revenue evaporated overnight. And for 18 months, we were just in survival mode, trying to keep the team together because we'd, you know, most the people had joined us in a volunteer capacity. They were like brothers and sisters in arms. We'd been to war with them. <laughs> and um, and suddenly uh, we were in a position where like, do we have to let everyone go? Um, we're, a ticketing, we're a ticketing social enterprise and it's COVID. Uh, but we, we, as a collective, slashed our salaries in line with each other and got through COVID without having to let anyone go. 
And uh, we gave our clients the best customer service of any ticketing platform in the world because we were the only ticketing platform in the world that didn't fire their sales and account management teams. And so coming out of COVID, and this is what I'd call phase three, the phase we're in now, um, we're booming. We are four times larger in tickets. We sell hundreds of millions of dollars in tickets now across predominantly Australia, New Zealand, America, Canada, and the UK. We have offices in Sydney, Denver, Auckland. And yeah, we, you know, the industry is roughly flat compared to where it was pre-COVID. Eventbrite's still down in revenue and we've grown over 400% because we looked after our people, we looked after our customers and we didn't make short-term decisions. And so now we're in massive, exciting phase again. But, you know, first stage was a lot of anxiety. Second stage was survival mode and COVID. Now this third phase is is definitely the most exciting and you know this year we'll give three to five million dollars to our education programs and the fruits of seven years of hard work are finally starting to pay off wow so when you get you know those wins like uh like google and like alassian what do they bring to the table when that happens obviously the capital from you know from google is is, is immense it was it alassian was that capital as well or was also that's like strategic advisement was a little bit more than just capital was it them you know, porting all their ongoing events onto Humanitics, like what was some of the value add there? Yeah, it's a great, great question because it's a lot more than just the capital. But, uh, you know, when you're a startup, capital is king. And uh, I don't want to take away from that. They both gave us a lot of cash. <laughs> sure, and, sure. Uh, and you need that. You need to hire software developers and build a good product. Otherwise, it stays a cute idea, but no one uses it. And so cash, yes, first and foremost, um, which is what we really needed at that point. We've got to 10 staff and it just wasn't, you know, you need growth capital. Um, but I'll talk about Atlassian first. They are the coolest company I've ever worked with. They literally give us access to anyone in their company. And so the other, a year ago when we were going to the US, I was chatting to their treasury team about which payment processes and which banks they use in America. And they were giving us all their due diligence, giving us warm introductions. You know, their, their cybersecurity team will once a year get together with our CTO and our team of software developers and do a day where they try and hack our platform and penetrate it and then work with our team to say, hey, here's area we found that we think you can do better on type of thing. And so like we're getting incredible access to one of the biggest technology companies in the world and any IP and staff we want there um, within reason, but but they've been absolutely phenomenal. So every month teams at Humanitics are doing projects with teams wow. at Atlassian and, uh, and their foundation is so genuine and good and has such good reach into the company that it's, it's really surprised us. I mean, even when we hired us chief technology officer back in 2017, um, his final stage interviews were done by senior developers at Atlassian who who told us at the end of that process that if you don't hire him, we will. And that gave us the conviction to hire a yeah. CTO. <laughs> so like they've been an amazing partner. And um, people often assume that because we're a nonprofit, our technology will suck, but it's world-class. And it's because we've got these big partners who have helped us build it and given us great advice along the way. Google have been good. Obviously that competition they ran was you know great for our brand and gave us a massive injection. And they actually give us a really good budget for YouTube and Google AdWords yeah. um, that we don't have yeah. to pay them for. And so like yeah. they're very good on the brand side for us. Um, and, uh, but we, you know, it's obviously a much bigger company, probably top five in the world, I imagine. And uh, it's a bit hard, you know, we, we can't get access to anyone. Sure. Yeah, no, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anything from them is, is, is amazing. And they do a tremendous job with the Google grants and the YouTube grants for nonprofits. If anybody doesn't know what that is, any nonprofit can apply to get, I believe it's $10,000 a month. In Google Correct. Ads, yeah. Ads. US, I mean, it's, US dollars. It's, I don't know if your audiences are all in America. But yeah. yeah well, they're everywhere, but you know, for the, for them, it's, it's really one of these things that, that that's 
quite unbelievable that every nonprofit should leverage. So, so yeah, I mean that that alone is huge. And then obviously the the add-on capital for winning the prize obviously sets you up for for success, right? It's, it it just gives you that that breathing room and also that optimism and motivation to say, hey, like we have two pretty monumental companies that believe in what we're doing. Um, it just gives you that that obviously that extra boost when you're you know when you're not making money when you're you know living at home and you maybe the peer pressure of society where it's like hey you should be doing this as a job already and have a home and a family already it's like it's so hard to to kind of show other people your focus right and, and like what you're trying to build over 20 years of your life right it, it's hard for some people to to understand that but when you have a vision it, it's hard to turn that off man and you know so it's really great to get that that support early on oh uh, yeah we've had um two close near dies the first was in the first two years and we just couldn't attract any capital and then those two companies saved us um the second was covid and yeah it's uh it's awesome that the vision's alive and now pumping but um the, the actual cool thing about google is they didn't fund us because you know our profits fund education programs i mean they like that but their main angle with humanitics was actually that we're solving accessibility for people with disabilities at events and so um we're uh the, the front end and back end of our platform is the most accessible ticketing platform in the world particularly for people with vision impairments and google's quite interested wow. in yeah. accessibility and like the tech behind that and so we have literally completely legally blind vision impaired event organizers who build and manage their events in our software and can do it independently and even check people in at their events. And um, disability groups had been lobbying the for-profit ticketing platforms for years to please make it accessible. Otherwise, you know, social inclusion is a massive, a massive issue for people with, with you know, serious disabilities. And, and so we found a way through the power of technology to, to solve that and, uh, or not completely solve it, it's still a challenge, but we're, we're doing our best and, and we've done a good job, I think. You mentioned uh, education nonprofits. You guys give back to with your profits. <laughs> what yeah. does uh, what does that look like? Is that you know three, five different nonprofits? Like how, how do you have you you chosen those, and what have those partnerships been like so far? As you scale, I'm sure they <laughs> they're very happy to see you guys scale, right? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll just um, I appreciate that it's a bit complicated. People don't see tech charities very often, so I'll just step a layer above and just explain. So Humanitics itself is a charity. There's no shareholders, and our pitch to philanthropists seven years ago was, hey, give us a million dollars. We're going to build this ticketing platform that becomes self-funding and then spits out profits to education programs. And with your million dollars, we're going to turn it into tens of millions of dollars for the same education programs you'd normally fund. And so it's a much more efficient way to do good in the world. And that was part of the pitch we gave. Um, and so we've actually achieved that in Australia, New Zealand and America. It's We're two years in and we're on track, but it's, it's not there yet. And so a big part of our project, even though we're a charity, is partnering with other frontline charities who we do the work with for educating the world's poorest children. And so generally in each country we go into, um, we have uh, a combination of domestic projects and international projects. And so in Australia, for example, um, uh, long story short, Australia has a really bad history with our indigenous population. It's still not right today. Uh, they're behind on every well-being statistic, whether it's life expectancy, incarceration rates, alcohol and drug um, abuse, etc., domestic violence. And so in Australia, our domestic projects focus on education programs for Aboriginal children and Torres Strait Islander children in regional areas who don't have access to good schools, but are showing a lot of potential and helping them get, you know, into the high school and then, and then 
tertiary education potentially for, you know, whether they want to become a nurse or a doctor or whatever that might look like. Um, you know, they're coming from very remote areas which just don't provide those opportunities. And, it's, and we partner with an Indigenous group in Queensland, in, which is a region of Australia, to, uh, to execute on that because um, you need local partners. And uh, internationally, we focus on literacy programs for young girls in low-income countries. And we do that with a group called Room to Read. And that's through a lot of Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And in North America, we've partnered with Code.org, which teach computer science to, uh, to predominantly disadvantaged children, but not exclusively. And they actually train teachers and help advise states on how yeah, to they're, they're great. make computer. Yeah, you know, I'm cool. Yeah, they, they, they turn computer science from a bit boring into actually pretty cool. I was in a school in Denver two months ago with a bunch of kids dancing after they'd coded a, a dance class on their software in the hour of code. It's actually like, I was in shock. I'm like, I remember computer labs in my in my school days and it was it was boring and they've made it fun, which is cool. I want to talk about, you know, growth for, for a second. And there's a lot of things that go into it, but you know, maybe besides the early, you know, stage capital, I mean, you still have to put, you still have to allocate that money correctly, right? In order to to get where you want to go and and scale where you, scale how you want to scale. What are maybe the the couple things that you attribute to, you know, that scale and that growth? You know, let's say over the last three years. I mean, obviously, you know, COVID is, you know, you were doubling before COVID happened, and then, you know, obviously that that's a whirlwind right there. But if we could kind of take COVID out, which is very difficult. But what yeah. would you attribute that, you know, that early growth to before COVID and maybe now, it, are the growth methods similar? Like, what would you what would you say has been has worked the best? Yeah. So part of the reason we went after ticketing to disrupt is because it markets itself. So when I win a twenty thousand person, like you know, we ticket some major events now. Like I don't know if you know New Year's Eve around Sydney Harbour, but it's uh, one of the biggest New Year's Eve parties in the world. The yeah. city sells the, like forty thousand tickets. One. It's all don't you go first? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so everyone around the world sees it. It's amazing how uh, famous it is. But um, but yeah, we ticket that. There's like 40,000 tickets from the city of Sydney. And um, you know, so we got some big events. Now, when we ticket that, 40,000 people see our brand. Of that 40,000, if right. half a percent are event organizers, we, you know, we're in front of a few hundred event organizers. And so we've grown really quickly. Through you know the the platform becomes viral and markets itself through our clients using it, and so that's been the biggest growth channel for us is just you hustle clients onto the platform, give them a good experience, and then through word of mouth and their marketing of their own event, we grow. And that added on top of Google ad grants and yeah, you know just sort of normal you know marketing. How how, how big is the team now? Yeah, we got uh, just over globally. We got just over sixty people now full time, and then we've got you know boards and certain service providers that you know do some services for us. So like if you were to add that all up, it's more. But but on our payroll, roughly just over sixty now. Wow, pretty incredible, my man. As we as we look you know to the future, and you know hopefully there's not another you know COVID, or, you know another another sort of immense event like that just completely shuts down you know businesses and. And events in, in in general, what would be success for you? Like, what's the the path now? Let's say the next three to five years. What are you guys talking about as far as growth? And obviously, you come to the U.S. and you know the, this part of the world. I guess what what does success look like for you? What are some of the goals that you guys want to hit within the next three to five years? Yeah, so you know, I kind of spoke of humanities to that to date as three phases. I kind of look forward in three phases. Um, so next three to five years um, is we've 
got to replicate what we've achieved in Australia and New Zealand in the rest of the world, starting with America, because America's half the world's booking fees. So the last two years, we've been grinding it out out of Denver. Um, we've, you know, that's our American headquarters and our 501c3, and it's going really well. Um, if we get this right in America, which so far so good, we should be in five years giving $30 million a year to our projects at no extra cost to anyone. And that's what success looks like to our team. Um, and, you know, part of that's Canada and the UK and rest of Europe as well. But the America's half the world's booking fees, so it's our focus. That's the three to five year kind of phase one. Phase two is, you know, if we can do this in ticketing, what else can we do it in? So on a three to 10 year view, we want it, um, to have other products that solve social problems. So like imagine you had, you know, Humana Insurance where you can get your car insurance and all the yeah. profits from your wow. car insurance policy go to saving the environment or something cool like that. So that we think there's a lot of disruptable online segments that we can um, apply this model to. And uh, on like a, a longer term view, um, we're really interested in the data for good concept. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. right now, like um, social media platforms, et cetera, they, they just sell our data to whoever will pay. And that's why elections get screwed up. That's why when you go on certain social media platforms, you advertised toxic things like, you know, I won't go into it, but like we've all seen those ads on different platforms. There's like, oh, why are you spreading this stuff? And they don't get, you know, it's, it's in their interest. Those those are the clients that pay. And, uh, you know, as we scale, we get data as well. We've already got over 2 million people on our newsletter. And so how can we use that for good? Because we don't have shareholders to, you know, we don't have to chase growth at all costs. And so in Australia, for example, there's a blind spot in our policy with early childhood education, where if you're a single mother, you're already on, at least on metrics, like statistics, you're disadvantaged. And uh, in Australia, if you, you know, you're most likely a low income earner, which, and if you earn an income, uh, the government won't subsidize your early childhood education. But if you don't earn an income and you quit your job, they'll subsidize it. And if you're a low income earner, the childcare is so expensive that you're really washing your face if right. you go to work because right. exactly. all your disposable income goes to child. So who wants to work to put their kid in childcare and have nothing left at the end of that? So people stop working. And then guess what? You haven't worked for five years. You're hard to employ again. So boom, you're in a poverty trap. That's not good for the mother. That's not good for the child. And it's really bad for society because now you're paying welfare for the rest of their life. So it's yeah. just a bad policy decision all the way around. And so, cool, we've got 2 million people in our newsletter. Why don't we rally them for a campaign about this and fix it? It's stupid. And so that's how we want to experiment with using data for good. Ideas like that. Now, it's not our core focus right now because we've got a lot on our plate, but how cool. That's part of our vision to have technology charities that, because technology is not good or bad, it's how we use it. But, you know, if you've got an incentive structure behind that, that is growth at all costs and faceless shareholders, you're not going to make those decisions. So that's part of the world we're trying to reimagine where technology is used to solve social problems. Do you think, I'll end on the last two questions here. Do you think you would be where you're at if it was a for-profit company? And was, you know, was that the vision all along? Was it to be, you know, hey, we're going to scale a technology as a, as a nonprofit, right? Like, was that always the vision or, or did you toy around with being, you know, a typical for-profit company with a lot, you know, all the normal things that go into, into that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, when me and Adam started this, uh, we, we intended for it to be a nonprofit because from our perspectives, we wanted to earn a, uh, a decent salary and have a dignified life, but we're not looking to become billionaires. So we didn't. So the only reason we'd make it a for-profit is if we could scale the impact more by making it a for-profit. We're not going to be um, stubborn and, you know, spite ourselves just to keep it as a non-profit if that means it can't scale because we can't access growth capital, for example. So uh, we always took the view of, you know, uh, whatever maximizes the social impact out of this idea. Maybe we can grow a lot faster and have a lot more. You know, I'd rather half of a billion dollars goes to charity than 
100% of a million dollars. Um, <laughs> and that, that's the challenge, you know, and, we, and it was an experiment because this has never been done before. So I always said, you know, we'll, we'll, um, we'll be pragmatic about what that is because that's why we're doing this. Um, we want to make impact. It's been pretty cool because uh, I don't know what the right answer is there. Um, there's arguments for, you know, we could scale quicker as a for-profit, but there's arguments for we can maximize the impact as a non-profit as long as we can find rational philanthropists to, to do this on, our, on the join the journey with us. And so far, there's been moments where I've regretted that and moments where I've been grateful for that. Uh, you know, there's been moments where it's like, ah, oh, this is so obviously good for the world, but uh, philanthropy is not driven by rational thinking always. Um, and there's, you know, it's not like private markets that are just seeking a return. And so that's almost destroyed us, but it's also made us. I think um, people are a lot kinder to our organization and do, like we wouldn't have Atlassian staff helping us like they do if we were just a for-profit investment. Um, they really believe in the mission and they appreciate that there's a really good crew of people working at this organization who could be working at the Googles of the world, getting higher pay and more equity, but are, yeah. are totally aligned with this mission and, you know, want to earn a good life, living, but not, you know, but have made that, that choice and they respect that and they help us more because of that. And so the jury's out. It's so far so good. We're scaling, we're winning, um, we're proving it can be done in this model. And hopefully that will inspire more philanthropists to think outside the box when they next see an idea like this, because the world of philanthropy is largely broken when it comes to this kind of stuff. Last question, my man, and it's around technology because I've start I've, I really try to put an emphasis on what tools you know companies founders are using to actually run day-to-day operations so like it, could you share like what the tech stack is at Humanitix as far as like slack or using Atlassian products throughout the yeah we use actually know. a lot of Atlassian products yeah they have um, and they let suite. us use them all for free they're amazing yeah. um so uh you know we use Jira for our software like pipeline and management yeah. um we use their service desk for uh, um, dealing with uh, uh, customer inquiries and automating a lot of that and, you know, just creating the funnel so that it's going to the right team to fix the right customer complaint or issue. We use Slack internally for comms. We use HubSpot as our CRM, um, Google Drive for, uh, you know, document storage and all that kind of good stuff, uh, Keeper for password protection, MongoDB and AWS, uh, Twilio, you know, yep. those are some of the input tools that we use. Um, what, about, what about Canva for design? The fellow awesome We, we use Canva for design. <laughs> yes. Canva have been a good a good friend to Humanitics. Uh, they're not a funder, but they've um, we were the one of the first companies in the world to integrate their button for our event organizers so they can natively nice. design things in Humanitics and Canva. And uh yeah, they're they're, uh, they're a very cool Australian company. But uh, yeah, those are kind of the key ones. I mean, you know, while we are a charity, if you walked in and looked at us, we we look like a tech company. So yeah, all the all the usual suspects that you'd find in a tech company. Awesome, my man. Well, congratulations. You know, thank on you, all Success so far. I, I know back when we originally talked, it was you were in deep grind mode, and and you know, I could I could tell that it was uh you know your passion was just unparalleled, and you know sometimes you just you just will yourself to to win, man. You know, some people just have a drive and, and that's sometimes what you need. Uh, obviously, a good product and, you know, good vision is all these, you know, far, founder traits go with it. Right. But, you know, just the drive. And, and honestly, the biggest thing is sacrifice. Like you said, I mean, you didn't, you guys, you know, lived at home, like, you know, worked on other things, like bootstrapped it. Like, there's a lot of sacrifice that go into building massive products that, you know, impact the world. And, you know, that's part of part of stuff I don't think that's talked about often is the sacrifice that's needed, right? No different than an athlete, right? That what they sacrifice early on to get great at something. And with a company and a startup, I mean, you have to sacrifice so much 
you know, as a founding team or, or, you know, some of the early team members, they have to sacrifice so much. Um, so kudos to you and the team, my man, best of luck for the next 10 years. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate those kind words. Um, I think that's, you know, uh, we, it's a great place to be now. We love it. I feel incredibly privileged and grateful to get to do what I do, but there were some dark years in there. I appreciate, <laughs> appreciate the sentiment of what you just said. Thank you. And thanks for giving us a shout out and, and yeah, great to connect again. I'll see you in Denver in a few months. 